Holy God, we are a people who are shaped by the stories that we hear. And we confess that many, many, many stories we have heard this week have been terrifying. We've heard stories of suicides and stories of volcanoes and earthquakes, hundreds of lives lost. We've heard stories of families in trauma, fleeing violence and hoping to find refuge, but children being removed from parents and waiting to find out what their fate will be in detention centers. We've heard stories of nations and their leaders in disputes about all kinds of things, making threats and calling each other names. And we're hearing a story about two leaders who are preparing to have incredibly important conversations in less than two days, our own president and the president or the leader of North Korea. And when we hear these things, we confess that we become fearful and overwhelmed. And that is not to mention the stories from our own community, stories of job losses, stories of people who have lost homes, who have had to say goodbye to people they love dearly. And these stories have a way of telling us that there is no hope, that all is doom and destruction, and that the only thing we can do is look out for ourselves. And so we bring these stories and we bring this understanding and we confess to you that we don't want to be shaped by these stories. We want to be shaped by your story. We want and we desperately need to be reminded and to know that there is a God who does indeed provide families for the lonely, who does work justice for the oppressed, who sees those who powerful people do not see who is the voice for the voiceless and who has the ability to answer prayers in ways that none of us can imagine. And so we call out to you, O God, and we ask that you would do what only you can do in each of these situations that has been mentioned and the many others that we bring into this room. Lord God, would you do what we cannot and would you bring redemption and reconciliation and resurrection life wherever there seems to be death? Would you bring hope and life? Would you cause your people who have been in mourning to somehow rejoice all over the world? For those of us gathered in this place tonight, we ask that the words that we are about to hear would form us to being the kind of people who can trust and be patient in the good work of our good God. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel, if you would, chapter 8. We're going to read a few verses out of chapter 8 and then just a couple of verses out of chapter 11. I have some friends who have Bibles, and if you don't own a Bible or you need to borrow a Bible for the evening, you can just raise your hand and somebody will bring you a Bible. 
Uh, you can find 1 Samuel in the table of contents of that Bible. If you don't have one, you can just keep this Bible as your own. I'm going to be reading you of the New Living Translation, and I'd like to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word for us this evening. So hear the Word of the Lord, starting with verse 4. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way, they, uh, about the way a king will reign over them. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Look at verse 16. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. Go to chapter 11, if you would, verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. So they all went to Gilgal, and in a solemn ceremony before the Lord, they made Saul king. Then they offered peace offerings to the Lord, And Saul and all the Israelites were filled with joy. This is the word of God for the people of God. And let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So for the last several years, I've gotten to teach an introduction to the Bible course at Southern Nazarene University. And in the course, I say this about the Bible. There are two important things I say about the Bible. I say that the Bible is true. But what the Bible is true about Uh, is this. The Bible is true in that it tells us the truth about who God is. But the other thing that the Bible does is it tells us the truth about human beings. It tells us the truth about humanity. And the truth is this. I'm going to tell you the truth today. We loathe grace. We simply hate it. The ministry of grace that comes in the story of God is something that we naturally reject. And the reason that we reject it is because we want to be in control. This is the problem of the human condition, matters of control. It's always been the problem, and and it will always be the problem unless there is a change. Matters of control, this idea that we can control our lives is just a myth. No one is able to be in total charge of his or her own life. No one is able to take matters into his or own own hands. Uh, nobody is able to change their own destiny, manage their own situation, even raise their children in the way they want to. There is never enough security. There is never enough money. There is never enough time. So here we are in this text. It's 1100 BC, and we're in the middle. Uh, we're in the middle of some really uh, 
some really sticky things happening politically. Now, I've got a biblical timeline that I want to show you here. So if, if we did a kindergarten rendering of the whole biblical story, what we call salvation history or salvation story, you could see that the whole Bible was kind of wrapped up with these major pieces. Now, you have creation and the patriarchs, which is about Abraham and how God calls Abraham. And then you have the exodus. And then you have the conquest where the people of God move into the land that God has promised them. And then you have the fact that these, uh, these people are ruled by a group of appointed judges by God, and then you have where we are now, where the people are asking for a king. You can see the rest of the story if you want, but now the people of God, they're in a situation where they've really prospered. They're there between the conquest and the kingdom. They've had these judges, and under the leadership of judges, boy, they have prospered. And now it's time to protect what they've got. So they're looking across the border to their neighbors. They're looking across the border and their neighbors have these gigantic armies. And not only that, but they, have, they can see these big building projects where their neighbors, the neighboring lands, are building massive buildings. And they begin to covet what their neighbors have. And they believe that they can get what their neighbors have if they can get a king. If they can have a human represent one of their own to lead them, lead them in this good way. Now, this would not be the first time that these people had a king because they had a king in the Exodus. And when the people of God were in the land of Egypt, they had this king. His name was Pharaoh. He was a king of Egypt, and he controlled them with an iron fist. He could see that, boy, this group of people, the Hebrew children, they are growing. They're multiplying. And, and they, he could also see that this God that they worshipped favored these children. And they were blessed by this God. And Pharaoh thought to himself, if I cannot get a handle on this, if I cannot control them, then they're soon going to grow so big that they, were, they will overpower me. So he sees the opportunity for control, and he takes control, and he puts them to work through hard labor, and then he puts together this whole huge economic and political system that's going to establish for him security, prosperity, and a global position of power for himself and for himself only. And this kind of control led to suffering of epic proportions. Pharaoh was... He was right about one thing. He was right about this fact, that the God of the Hebrew children favored them. And all throughout this story that you see here, all throughout the whole biblical story, this God offered his grace to them. And he gave them freedom, and he snatched them from the hand of this controlling dictator, and he offered them what they did not have, while Pharaoh and Egypt offered them nothing. Freedom is what this God offered them. Freedom is what God offered them on Mount Sinai throughout this whole story. Freedom is what God offered them in the desert. Freedom is what God offered them as they lived in the land of milk and honey. Freedom is what God offered them as they were led by judges, as they rebelled, as they faced the judgment and the severe consequences of God, and then came back to God again. Freedom is what God offered them as they had to face foreign threats. All throughout this story, 
God is gracious to them. He would give to them. He would rescue them. He would save them. He would minister. He would call. He would invite. He would heal. He would provide prophets to keep them on the right path, priests to mediate between them and their God, and leaders to show them the right way to go. But throughout the whole story, the story that you see here and now in this text, God's grace never seemed to be enough for them. His salvation was never enough. His provision and his protection was never enough. And now we're reading this text. And it's a new generation and it's a new day. It's time to move, God. It's time to move on. And if God wants to come along, the attitude is, that'd be great. But it's time for a change, a reboot. It's time to get relevant. Make sure that we're heading into the next century ready. And there's one thing that they believe that will help them do this. They want what the other nations have. They want a king. Either, and, and, and a couple things have happened. Either they have forgotten what being under a king was like, or it's more likely that this time they believe it will be different. Up until this point, God had been their king, but they've discovered this truth that God is a free agent, unable to be controlled. And so they start, they start working the politics. It's very American of them. Uh, you know, I wonder what it was like. You know, there are these secret board meetings. There's dinner table discussions, water cooler gossips. Plans are created. Opposing political parties finally are working together. Alliances, secret coalitions, phone calls, under-the-table deals, handshakes. The tape recorders are recording. It's called Israel Gate. That is what the historians will call it. And there's only one thing in the way. Samuel. So they begin to work their political savvy, their political mojo, their political magic on Samuel. And they tell Samuel that he's getting old. It's time to start moving on, Samuel. And then they do it. They play the trump card. They start to patronize Samuel. They say, you know, Samuel, we cannot make the same mistakes that we've done in the past. Do you remember Eli, Samuel? And we talked about Eli last week. His sons were no good. Remember that night when you heard God's voice in the middle of the night and God told you that he was going to wipe out Eli's family because of the evil of his sons? Well, your sons haven't exactly been behaving either, Samuel, so they can't be in charge. We cannot make that mistake again. These, these people are good. And, and while they're doing that, while, while they work at that, what they're really thinking is this. We need to find a way to get the old man out. Sure, Samuel was good in his day, but he is way past his prime. If we're going to move into the future, if we're going to be able to be relevant in the world in the next few dec decades, we can't let the geezer with the superstitions stay in charge. Sure, he was a good judge, but it's a new day. His time is done. We need new ideas. We need somebody younger. We need something fresh. You know, companies do this to their founders. Universities do this to tenured professors. Children do this to their aging parents. Churches do this to their ineffective pastors. We got to have something new, something novel, something cataclysmic, something that's going to take us to the next level. We've got to do something. 
So Israel looks around. We have to make sure, they say, that we have superior strength and superior superior firepower. We need somebody who can judge us and somebody who can even, if it was necessary, take us into into battle. You know, this this was the theme of the 2016 presidential election and every presidential election before that. Who is going to help us compete on the global scale? Who's going to make us more prosperous? Who will be the one who defends us in battle? Well, Israel says, you know who seems to be doing it well? I mean, really well. I mean, really, really well. The Philistines, they seem to be doing it well. The Canaanites, they seem to be doing it well. The Amalekites, the Moabites, they are doing it really well. You know who's doing it really, really well? The Chinese, they're doing it real well. The Russians, the Germans, you know who is doing it really, really well? Apple, Google, ExxonMobil, J.P. Morgan Chase, Walmart, Wells Fargo, Amazon. You know who's doing it really, really well? The University of Oklahoma, UCO, Indiana Wesleyan University. They're doing it really, really well. You know who's doing it really, really well? Life Church. Why can't we be more like them, is what we ask. It doesn't matter who we are or what age we live in. The truth is revealed. We always look to see what our neighbors are doing. If the perception is is that they've got it, if they've got it better or it's bigger or there's more security, then we're willing to drop the God that's provided freedom and security in the past for us. We're willing to take the risk, and we're willing to gamble what we have for what we think our neighbor has. And sometimes we'll even pray to this God and we'll ask Him to give us what we want, even when we know that He doesn't think it's good. So our attitude is seen in the elders and in the people. If if we're going to survive, we got to grab the bull by the horns. We can't leave it up to ancient methods and prehistoric deities. we got to find a way, a new way to match the global competition and try to position ourselves for security and prosperity. We need someone or something to be our representative, to get the job done, and to establish both our economic security and our global standing. And if it comes down to it, we need somebody who's like us that's going to lead us into battle. Our God is not enough. What he has given is not enough. Our God is about grace. And we hate grace. Grace is detestable. Because grace doesn't bolster our pride. It it forces us to be humble. And who gets ahead that way? Pride gets you championships. Humility makes you a meme We believe that if we pay for something, or if we work for something, or if we earn something, we can control it. We have the right to it. It doesn't matter if it's property, or resources, or children, or our own elected officials. But God is this free agent, and we cannot dictate what this God will do and how this God will act. We cannot control the benefits of grace, nor can we control when we receive it. But we're Americans, and for us, good 
old-fashioned work obligates God to bless us. It's the Protestant ethic. If, if we do the right things, then, then God must respond predictably. If we do the right things, then God must become our servant, and we become like Israel. God is then to bless our plans. So we would rather pay for something rather than to receive his grace freely. We'd rather maintain our pride and, and our false sense of control. This is, why we, this is why we prefer idols to God. Because foolishly, they believe idols keep them in control of their God. So these people want Israel, these people want a man to be their king. They want, this, they, want, uh, they want this man to be their God. And God gives them exactly what they want. This is his grace. And Samuel is devastated. He's tried to lead. He's, he's tried to warn. He's tried to talk them out of it. But the once people of God want to forgo their identity that was once rooted in this space and this story of freedom. And they want to embrace something new. They want to embrace a new way. They've peered over their fence into the neighbor's yard. And now they want what their neighbor has because they think that that's what will give them control. So God and Samuel have a conversation, a hard one. It's one where they both share in the same grief. Samuel feels rejected and so does God. But even in this, even in this conversation, God seems to comfort. He's gracious, and he says, Samuel, they're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you. Even in the middle of this rebellion, and even in the middle of this grief, God acts the good neighbor, which is what God has been all along. He's been the good neighbor. He gives them what they want. He gives them a king. He extends to them grace even when they, and he extends grace to us even when we hate it. So Samuel anoints Saul, king over God's people, and the people shout out in this wild celebration. But soon, the story tells us they begin to struggle under his leadership. The economic and personal consequences are much more than they can bear. And they find out that once again, they've entered into a form of slavery that is deeply painful. They have to live into the pain of their choices as the consequences are greater than what they were anticipating. And as the gamble didn't work out, as Saul and David and Solomon and the rest of the kings didn't line up and do a good job, I think this text teaches us something because it is more than a story. It's a way to hear the truth about ourselves, as tough as that might be, and it forces us to ask questions. So these are the questions that I want us to ask. What are the things in our lives that we try to control when in fact, in reality, we have no control over it all? It forces us to ask this question. In what ways do we resist the grace of God? It forces us to ask this question. How have we or I maintained our or my plans and asked God to bless what we or I was or were doing, even though everyone knew 
It, was, it wasn't what he thought was best. This text teaches us that the grace of God is what we hate. But it also teaches us that God is so gracious that he gives us exactly what we ask for. And even when he gives us what we ask for, he's good enough to turn that even into grace. That which we hate, that which we need, and that which is what we want is what God gives us. We wanted a human king, a king that looked just like us, a king that would judge and fight our battles. So that is exactly what what God gave us, the anointed king. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And this is the way of grace. This is the way of his mercy, his compassion. This is the way of his freedom. This is the way that God gives us both what we want and what we need. And it is seen here in this bloody, shamed, crucified, and then resurrected, glorified Christ. Christ means the Messiah, the anointed one. It, it translated, it means he's the king. And this is what the Lord's Supper represents for us today. It represents that he is the king that has established a new royal line of hope. And as Samuel's mother Hannah says, he came to set things right. The judges couldn't do it. Saul couldn't do it. David and his sons couldn't do it. And we can't do it. And what we cannot do, Jesus of Nazareth is capable to do. So as the king, his crown was that of thorns. His throne was a cross of murder. His royal sign, one of mockery that was above his head. His subjects were the ones who shamed him. And he said about them, Father, they have no sense, no idea what they're doing. And in his grace, he said, forgive them. Grace is what we hated. Grace is what we need. Grace is what is given. And communion is a means of grace. It means that we are able to, it means that we are able to take into our bodies the bread and the wine. And here, God at this table is able to do something for us that we are unable to do for ourselves. It's a confession that his grace is good for us even though we might hate it. It is trust that he is acting in a good way on our behalf, even when we don't know it. It is a way to say that he is the king, and he is able to lead us and restore his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. To come to this table is a way to partake, and to partake into these elements is a way to act in trust to this holy God. And so we come to this table as a confession That while we might not want it, we are definitely in need of his grace. So I want to remind you that at dinner on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, This, this, my friends, is my body which is broken for you. And whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood, and whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Anyone who wants to be a receiver of grace, anyone who wants to trust in this God, is invited to this table. 
And we want no barriers, so I want you to know that our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. And when you come, I want you to come down one of these two aisles, come to one of these, uh, my friends, uh, with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. This is grace. Approach one of these servers, listen to what they have to say, dip the bread into the cup, and be thankful. Then you can return to your chair by way of the outside aisles. And if for any reason you can't make it down our aisle, I just want you to wave your hand at my friend Paul here, and he will come serve you. But when you are ready, my friends, to receive his grace, I invite you to come.